Welcome to the sermons of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Fort Capel, Saskatchewan. We pray that this may be a blessing to you, and God's Word would dwell richly within your heart. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. As we have said before, Epiphany is the time when we see Jesus continually revealing himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God as the promised one of old to come to save his people. That is why the name of the season is Epiphany, which comes from the word meaning revealing. Today in the Gospel lesson, we heard of the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. That sign was the changing of water into wine at a wedding in the city of Cana. In this act, he manifested his glory. He revealed who he was, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of seven signs that St. John records in his gospel, and by it, our Lord teaches us much about himself and his ministry. One of the first things that this miracle demonstrates to us is our Lord's blessing of the institution of marriage. Throughout time, there have been those who have thought ill of marriage and have misused it, some using it as an excuse or cover to dominate or abuse their spouse and children. Other times, it has been treated flippantly as a mere contract so that divorce is not seen as a serious act and one taken in with sin, but a simple dissolving of a contract just like any others. And yet at other times it is shunned, seen as unimportant, just a slip of paper, so there's no need to formalize anything because that just makes things all that much more complicated. Our culture expects the unmarried of any age to live together before marriage, or even to shun it altogether. It's not uncommon to hear of those that cohabitate without any intention of marriage, or those that have been engaged for many, many years. And sadly, this, these attitudes and thoughts are not limited to our society and culture only, but these sorts of things can also be found within the church. Illicit divorce and cohabitation are easy to overlook when they happen in our community or to those close to us. It's easy to make excuses for them or to adopt the outside culture's view rather than that of our Lord. Or of this, we must repent when we find ourselves acting in this way. For our Lord has indeed blessed the institution of marriage and he shows his approval of it first in his attendance at the wedding, for there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. By attending, he shows his approval of marriage, shows that it is indeed a holy estate, for God instituted marriage first in the Garden of Eden, 
when he created Eve and presented her to Adam, just as the family of the bride would present her to the bridegroom. And here Jesus shows that this is not something limited to the old covenant, but it continues to have God's blessings and approval in the new as well. He also shows us that he not only approves of marriage, but also blesses it in a twofold way. First, by his gracious presence, for where Jesus is present in grace, that place is surely blessed. But he also blesses it by his miracle and sign. This sign was not a sign of judgment. It was not a sign that was opposed, but it was a sign that brought blessings, joy, and even material support to the couple. For after the wedding feast, they would have had much good wine left over, which they could sell in order to support themselves. Yes, this was a miracle that blessed this and all marriages, and in it we see Christ's concern and care for the people at the wedding, and by extension to all people. For he who after fasting for forty days and forty nights would not change the stones into bread in order to feed himself, changed water into wine for the blessing and enjoyment of others. The Apostle John writes that through this miracle our Lord Jesus manifested his glory. He does this in a twofold way. The first way in which he manifests his glory is that through this miracle he gives proof that he is the long-promised Messiah. How so? Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets speak of the time when the Messiah will come. They speak of the blessings that he will bring to his people, and it is often called the Messianic Age. Now, because of the nature of prophecy, what they write ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ our Lord, but not all of it at once. For it often speaks of all that Christ will do, including his earthly ministry, his death and resurrection, and his coming again to judge the world. Many times these things are said side by side in the prophecy with no distinction of time made, simply putting them all out at once because this is what the Christ, the Messiah, will do. With that said, one reoccurring theme in the prophets regarding the Christ, the Messiah, is the abundance of wine. The prophet Amos writes of this time, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Holy Isaiah writes, in the mountain of the Lord of hosts, he will make a feast for all people, a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wine on the lees. And again, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. The prophet Joel writes of this time, The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. And again, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. Yes, all of these speak of the time of the Messiah, when that which is difficult to attain, which takes much hard work in order to enjoy, which in moderation makes the heart glad, will be present in abundance. Here our Lord Jesus shows us that he is the Messiah, through turning water into wine, 
and not just into any wine, but into good wine, into the choicest of wine, and not just a little, but over 680 liters of wine. The second way in which our Lord manifests his glory with this miracle is by giving a revelation of his divinity. This revelation comes in the manner of the miracle itself. Now there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And the master of the feast tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. In this miracle, we see Jesus doing things that only God can do. He works his miracle by his word of command. First, we see our Lord specifies that the servants of the wedding feast use the stone water pots rather than the amphorae that previously held the wine. This is not a case of there being some remaining wine in the jars that is mixed with the water and then miraculously becomes good wine. No, there is no mixture at all. There are stone water pots which are only used for the many and various purification rituals which normally belonged to the temple, but which the Pharisees had popularized among the common people. And so they used these only for that purpose, and they only ever contained water. There had never been anything but water in them. Never had there been wine or oil or anything else. Thus, when they draw out of the water pots wine instead of water, it means that our Lord Jesus has done something that the mind can just not understand. He creates anew. He changes the water so it is no longer water at all, but it is wine. At his word, the water ceases to be, and there is good wine in its place, a new creation. This power belongs to God alone, and in this he manifested his glory. This is what the disciples believed in, not in the facts of the miracle, but in what was behind it, and in what it confessed, that their master Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, continues to do such miracles today. For Jesus did not perform this miracle of turning water into wine for the sake of the bride and groom only. It was not simply turning the wine, making wine because it ran out, but it was to manifest his glory. His concern was not merely with earthly wine, but with the wine of our redemption, which flows from the winepress of the cross which he alone tread, making his garments red with blood, so that by his passion and death he might bring us eternal salvation and redemption through the forgiveness of our sins. For because of our sin, we are like bad water, not good for any real use, not water that we think of today which is cool and refreshing and good to drink, but that water which was abundant in the ancient world, water which was considered weak, bad, and even deadly because of the taint within it. So is our nature because of sin. But when our Lord grants us the gift of faith, and when we trust in him because of what he has done for us, he makes us anew, changing us from the inside out 
so that he creates within us a clean heart. Brothers and sisters, St. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ we are made new, raised from the dust of death into life. By faith in him our sins are forgiven. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and we are declared righteous in God's sight. On this side of the resurrection, that new creation within us fights with the old sinful nature, which hangs on and remains stubbornly until death. St. Paul often refers to this as flesh. Our new self is filled with the Holy Spirit, and each is granted a variety of gifts according to God's purpose, so that we may build one another up through the help of the Holy Spirit, subdue the desires of that sinful flesh. Thus, all that we hear in our epistle today relates to this new creation, for these are the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit who dwells in believers, loving without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving preference to one another over ourselves, not lagging in diligence, but being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints and being given to hospitality. These things we strive to do and desire to do because Christ Jesus has made us new creations because we are in him, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and to please God our Father, who has done all of this for us out of his free grace and mercy without any merit or worthiness in ourselves. All of this is the fruit of our Lord's passion and death, of his work on our behalf and in our stead. This was his goal in his ministry, that through his work we may live with him forever. Instead, the setting, indeed, sorry, the setting of this miracle points us to all of this. This miracle, this sign, took place at a wedding. And what was the purpose of the Son of God taking on flesh and coming into this world other than for the sake of a marriage? Yes, this miracle reminds us that Christ is the bridegroom and his bride is the church. It reminds us that all that he has done was to save her. For by the shedding of his blood, he has redeemed his bride. Through his death, he has rescued her from enslavement to the devil, which she found herself in through sin. He took on flesh that he might die for her sins, so that through the washing of the water with the word, she might be presented to him spotless and without blemish. And he rose again for her justification, so that she and all who are a part of her by faith are declared righteous in God's sight. On top of all of this, he has given the Holy Spirit as a pledge to her, as a promise of the resurrection and of the inheritance of the kingdom of God in the world to come. What man has ever done such things for his bride as Christ has done for the church? He has not given her gold and silver, jewels and trinkets, land and estates, but he has given her his life through the shedding of his blood for her sins. All those who, like the disciples in our gospel, believe in him are made members of the church, his bride, 
and so participate in these things and have these future joys promised to them. And if this were not enough, in the sacrament of the altar, our Lord Jesus also gives us a foretaste of the wedding feast to come in his kingdom, which will have no end. For here he gives to us his true body and true blood with the bread and wine to eat and drink. When we eat and drink his body and blood and receive it with faith, we receive from him the forgiveness of sins and thus life everlasting and eternal salvation. In this blessed communion, we have a foretaste of the eternal communion, which we will gain in the wedding feast of the Lamb. There, all the promises, which we now possess by faith, we will have in substance. There, the sinfulness, which remains in us in this life, and against which we struggle, will be gone forever. Only the new and the pure will remain. There, our joy will be without end, and our communion with God never-ending, for God will dwell in the midst of his people for all eternity. May our Lord Jesus Christ grant that we be kept steadfast in this faith until death, so that when he manifests his glory at the end of time, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, we may be found in him, and so enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which will have no end. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless and preserve you always. Amen. Amen.